Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. Uh, I have to get used to saying that because it's no longer Blue Line Millennial, but we're not even going to get into that right now. I want you all to gather around. It's history time. So get your cult monitors, get your glass of bourbon, because Prohibition and the Volstead Act are on their way out, but bank robberies, courtesy of the Dillinger Gang, are on their way up. And we're going to go hang out with FBI Special Agent Melvin Purvis so that we can go and hunt down John Dillinger, Pretty Boy Floyd, and Babyface Nelson. Let's go! On tonight's episode of History Time, I'm drinking Maker's Mark 46. It is quite delicious, and you should get yourself a bottle. Also, if anybody can source the uh, the new limited release from Maker's, let me know. Hit me up. Send me a DM. I tried to have a bottle shipped to Arizona, um, but that didn't go so well. So if you know a place local uh, in the Phoenix area where you can find it, uh, please help me out. Let me know. I would like to add it to my bar cart. But we're not here to talk about bourbon. We are here to talk about FBI agent Melvin Purvis. That name may sound familiar if you've uh, ever seen the movie Public Enemy, a great movie, uh, a wildly inaccurate film, but a good film nonetheless. Seems to be uh, a popular topic, though, when I uh, when I put out the, uh, the votes on Instagram as far as what do y'all want to hear for history time, these uh, Prohibition-era gangsters keep coming back uh, in force. Um, uh, there's even a little bit of a... a a tie, if you will, to uh, to Bonnie and Clyde. We had that episode about Frank Hamer uh, a while back, um, but we'll get to that in due course. Uh, and I hope you enjoy these these short little history time episodes. Um, they're uh, they're pretty easy for me to crank out because they're you know twenty or thirty minutes long, um, and I can just do them here uh, you know in the evening with my with my glass of whiskey, and uh, and I get to learn something out of it as well because I've spent a couple of days or so preparing the episodes. Uh, just gathering all the facts and uh, perusing the the internet of things. Um, but uh, yeah, let's just go ahead and dive into it. Uh, Melvin Purvis uh, was born in 1903, uh, and he was called Little Mel because he stood five foot four. Now, if you remember the movie, Christian Bale played Melvin Purvis. Now, uh, the Batman uh, is six feet tall, eight inches taller than than Melvin Purvis was in real life, but that is hardly the only inaccuracy uh, from that film. However, learned a great deal about Melvin. Um, before he was an FBI agent, he graduated uh, from the University of South Carolina uh, School of Law and actually practiced law as an attorney and then ended up becoming an FBI agent in 1927. Uh, he was stationed in Birmingham, Alabama, Oklahoma City, uh, and Cincinnati, and made such a name for himself uh, through his investigative capabilities uh, and really his kind of uh, uh, hardline way of, of doing business. Uh, he was noticed by the director of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, and sent to be in charge of the investigative division in the FBI office uh, in, in 1932. Now, repeal day didn't happen until 1933, and so you're very much still in the throes of that prohibition era that that that's the time of the speakeasies. Um, and, uh, you know, it's how NASCAR was born because we're going to load up all this moonshine and we're going to go racing across these freaking dirt roads as fast as humanly possible. Um, it was it's the time of Ford V8s as the fastest and most powerful and most sought after car. Um, 
not only by the criminal class, but by law enforcement and the cops just aren't just aren't getting them. Uh, and the criminals are just fucking stealing them because you're a criminal and that's what you do. Um, but uh, uh, Chicago in 1933 was a very dark uh, time in the city's history. It was, I mean, the Great Depression had swung in. Uh, people were living on the streets. Uh, you had the the Hoover blankets uh, where people living on the streets are just covering themselves up with newspapers in an attempt to stave off the cold uh, and, and the other elements, uh, the, the rain and the wind of Chicago. Um, and crime was at an all-time high Really, uh, so much of it came down to people just trying to get by and trying to live. And they had uh, what they felt was no other option. And they had to turn to that life of crime because so many jobs were were out uh, and the dollar didn't mean a damn thing. Um, you know, hey, it's not like history repeats itself or anything. Um, but uh, the Dillinger gang, uh, John Dillinger, uh, Charles Floyd, a.k.a. Pretty Boy Floyd, Lester Gillis. I had to change my name to uh, Babyface Nelson. Uh, uh, Lester Gillis's babyface Nelson. Uh, the Dillinger gang was responsible for at least 12 bank robberies, and individually, they were all responsible for a number of other crimes. Um, Dillinger ended up being sprung from prison with what might have been a fake gun. He didn't end up firing a shot, but he was out in the yard doing like calisthenics um, in March 1934 uh, uh, after he'd been arrested in Tucson uh, and then uh, extradited. Uh, back to the the Midwest, uh, and and pulled a, uh, a, a hidden gun out that may or may not have been a real firearm, and made it out of the prison without even firing a shot. Uh, ultimately, spoiler alert, sort of the too long didn't read of this episode. All three of those guys dead. Um, well, no shit. It's 2022. This was like 80 some odd years ago. Uh, but they all were killed in 1934. Um, by Melvin Purvis uh, and his team. Now, the the film, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but in the film, you'll recall that uh, uh, I think Christian Bale just walks right up behind uh, Johnny Depp and, and uh, shoots him in the back of the head. Uh, that That's not at all um, what happened. Of the three gangsters, uh, you'd almost think it would be reversed, but Dillinger, uh, again, public enemy number one, and actually public enemy number one was the entirety of, of the Dillinger gang. Um, uh, even, uh, I think, uh, one of the guys's wives was the first female public enemy. Number one. Um, but, but that, that designation went to the entire gang, but Dillinger being the ringleader of the Dillinger gang was who they went after first. So at about 10 30 at night, July 22nd, 1934, um, uh, they ended up getting their man. Uh, Dillinger had been uh, at a movie theater attending uh, the Manhattan melodrama, a uh, of course a crime film starring Clark Gable. Um, and uh, funny enough, the theater owner almost blew the entire operation because he he the theater owner sees these FBI agents staking the place out and they're on surveillance, and he ends up calling Chicago PD. Chicago PD uh, responds as they would, as any law enforcement agency would. Uh, and nearly blows the entire lid off of the whole operation, ends up getting waved off uh, by the FBI. This is why we now have deconfliction. Spoiler alert, those of you who are investigators, if you're going to go out and do a search warrant or uh, do any sort of high-profile activity, make sure that the people around you know what you're doing. If you're going into another city, 
give a little courtesy call or have your dispatch center do it. Um, if, uh, if you've got an investigation through like the internet and all the crazy shit that happens there, uh, just remember that, uh, like detectives sometimes use the internet as an investigative tactic. Uh, so you can use things like the internet crimes against children, uh, task force, ICAC, uh, you can deconflict with them and set up a, you know, so they know about your operations and they'll put the word out to surrounding agencies. Um, because this shit has happened far too many times. There's my favorite story ever. This is totally has nothing to do with John Dillinger is when, um, like Detroit narcotics detectives were arrested by other Detroit PD detectives who thought that the narcotics detectives were actual narcotics dealers. They couldn't even deconflict within their own agency. They recreated the Spider-Man meme. Luckily, no one was hurt, um, but that's happened far too many times. So that's my little soapbox moment. If you're going to conduct an op, deconflict with local law enforcement. Um, uh, anyways, getting back to uh, Chicago, 1934, July. Let me set the scene again. Nighttime. Enter scene. Um, there's there's a couple different accounts. Interestingly enough, there's a couple accounts to pretty much all of these uh, uh these, these gangsters and their demise. Um, Melvin Purvis himself, who is at this point in time, the poster child of the FBI, his face is plastered all over the newspapers. Um, and his name is all over the radio. Uh, it is not, it is open source intelligence. And again, criminals do this shit for a living too. John Dillinger knows what Melvin Purvis looks like, but old Mel, he decides he's going to wait outside the movie theater. And when John Dillinger walks out, Mel decides that the most appropriate signal is to light a cigar. Well, you know, somebody lights up a big old cigar in your face as you're walking out the door. What happens? John Dillinger turns, sees Melvin Purvis, looks across the street, takes in a whole lot of intelligence and information in that brief moment uh, and realizes that the the net is closing in around him as he spots all these G-men uh, in their government-issued Hudsons, um, and their, I can only imagine their fedoras and their vests and, you know, the, the usual sort of stereotypical 1930s detective look, uh, he takes off running. And the account differs in that he either does or does not pull a gun out of his pocket. He either attempts to pull a gun out or does, in fact, succeed in pulling the gun out. Um, Melvin Purvis doesn't even chase him. Three other agents uh, end up beaten feet after uh, John Dillinger Dillinger ducks into an alleyway. Uh, and these, these three other agents, Clarence Hurt, Charles Winstead, and Herman Hollis, uh, fired at him a total of six times. Dillinger was hit four times. Again, soapbox moment. Remember that you are accountable for all the rounds that you fire. Um, ultimately, um, I believe it was uh, Hollis's round, um, or it might have been Winstead. I can't, I can't remember, but um, and it's not in my notes, but... The, there was a fatal round that severed Dillinger's spinal cord and exited just underneath his eye. You can actually see that wound. There are four Dillinger death masks, because that was a thing um, that, that exists. Uh, one of them's an Alcatraz. The other, the other ones are kind of spread out in various museums. And you can actually, in that plaster cast of Dillinger's face after his death, you can see the exit wound under, uh, under his right eye there. Um, 
and again, differs largely from the movie. There, there's a moment in there that after he's shot, uh, it, it takes him a minute to die, and he's communicating um, with his girlfriend and uh, says something to her. They had like that that Bye Bye Blackbird song that they, they would uh, recite to each other. Um, it is largely agreed that John Dillinger died when he hit the ground. You don't usually survive the severing of your spinal cord um, to any extent. Now, the interesting thing, uh, sort of the twisted thing about this, I'm reminded that humanity has not come that far from the time of the gladiators where thousands of people would gather around and watch people kill each other. And that was their form of entertainment. Well, July, 1934, you are two months removed from Frank Hamer and his posse firing several hundred rounds of ammunition into Bonnie and Clyde. And remember the crowd for Bonnie and Clyde, people were trying to rip, rip car parts off, pull, uh, pull clothing off of, off of the, the deceased. Um, supposedly souvenir hunters showed up to the, the, the scene of the, of the shooting and were taking handkerchiefs and soaking them in John Dillinger's blood so that they could have a piece of history. Let that sink in for a minute. Again, I maintain that our society, even as, as quote unquote Western society and how allegedly advanced we are and how far we've come, It wasn't all that long ago. The gladiator time, sure, you can be like, bro, that was like a thousand years ago. Um, or, or even further, further back than that shit. But this was not that far. It was 80 years ago. In the grand scheme of things, it wasn't that long ago. And we're still, you know, there's still weird shit that happens nowadays. But to walk up to the scene of a shooting and take out a handkerchief and dip it in that blood. First of all, they were never taught uh, the, the cops that were there were never taught the inner and outer perimeter. There's another little, little talking point. Um, but damn, like what goes through someone's mind? How, how much of a grip did these prohibition era gangsters, the Dillingers and the Bonnie and Clyde's of the world that they were rock stars. They, they truly had this, this hold on American society. So much so that an otherwise normal and, and just standard American, you know, member of society and just a normal everyday American citizen, average Joe would be like, oh, shit, John Dillinger's blood is on the ground. Let me get my hanky and dip it in John Dillinger's blood so that I can have it. Also, I'd like to point out that somewhere in an attic, somebody uh, has not realized that their great great grandfather had a handkerchief of John Dillinger's blood, and it's just sitting in a U-Haul box somewhere. It's been moved around from you know place to place, but it, somewhere out there, uh, one of you listening needs to go and and check that Foot Locker that great great grandpa had, and and go and find John Dillinger's bloody handkerchief. Um, ugh. anyways, uh, the very next uh, target for the FBI during this sort of a uh, um, you know, nationwide manhunt was Pretty Boy Floyd. Pretty Boy Floyd was discovered largely uh, by accident uh, because of a car accident. Um, he and uh, Adam Ricchetti, who was one of his uh, one of his associates, got lost in the fog, slid off a road. 
Um, they sent their, uh, their girls off to go and, and get help. Turns out that two dudes in a pickup truck, uh, a guy and his son-in-law drive past and noticed two men in suits kind of sleeping on the side of the road. Think, well, that's odd. They might need help. Uh, they didn't jump out and help themselves. They went and got local law enforcement from Wellsville, Ohio. Um, and, uh, and turned local PD on him. Now, Ricketti was also, uh, not only was he an associate of Pretty Boy Floyd, but he was also wanted in, connect, in connection with uh, the Kansas City Massacre of 1933. Four police officers were killed in this Kansas, Kansas City Massacre. And this is not the only time that I'm going to address uh, that, uh, that killing. Um, it, it's going to come up again here in a little bit. But after the local cops from Wellsville uh, find this car that slid off the road, again, thinking they're just coming to the scene of a collision. Uh, uh, Floyd beats feet and runs off into the woods. Um, Ricketti stands by and gets into a brief gunfight, wounds a cop in the foot. Um, he, he's ultimately apprehended. Um, three days later, though, on, on October 22nd, 1934, um, pretty boy Floyd is, uh, is spotted by the arrest team, which is now, made up of um, at least four FBI agents and possibly four of these local cops. Um, now, for Pretty Boy Floyd, there are three different accounts of how he died. Um, there's, uh, there's one account that says uh, this guy, Officer Chester Smith, who retired as a captain from this local PD, uh, he was a World War I sniper. And as he sees Pretty Boy Floyd beating feet into this tree line again. Now that they've spotted him behind this row of corn, he pulls out his 32 Winchester and, uh, uh, shows, shows those other cops exactly why uncle Sam trained him to be a sniper in the Western front and, uh, puts two rounds into pretty boy Floyd and pretty boy Floyd is heard saying, you got me twice. I'm done for. He falls to the ground. Um, he then gets up and is subsequently fired on by the entire team. Um, now there's, the, the differences come in uh, shortly thereafter. Um, and actually, it, it's sort of all over the place. According to this, this Captain Chester Smith, who gave an interview to Time Magazine in 1979 about this, um, he said that uh, after he shot Floyd, Melvin Purvis himself walks up to Floyd and begins to interrogate this man who's lying wounded and bleeding on the ground. And Floyd tells Melvin Purvis to get fucked. So what does Purvis do? Melvin Purvis uh, had been known for his, um, oh, we'll call him a violent resolution specialist. Um, other gangsters had claimed to have been tortured by Melvin Purvis, losing 25 pounds, teeth, broken bones, things like that. So after Pretty Boy Floyd tells Melvin Purvis to shove it, Melvin Purvis tells FBI agent Herman Hollis to kill him. And so Hollis proceeds to dump a stick, uh, a magazine from a Thompson submachine gun into pretty boy Floyd at point blank range. Reminds me of that scene in, uh, in band of brothers. You all know the one. Uh, and if you don't watch band of brothers and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, but much like that show that may not actually have been anywhere near what happened? The official FBI account states that an eight-man arrest team of four FBI agents and the four local cops, Chester Smith included, um, spotted Floyd's car behind this cornrow. 
Floyd got out of the car, 1911, 45 caliber pistol in hand, and was shot by the FBI right then and there. He runs off into the woods, where uh, wounded. Melvin Purvis yells at him, tells him to halt. Uh, Floyd isn't going to start listening now, and so then uh, Purvis orders the arrest team to fire on Floyd. Pretty boy Floyd struck by four rounds. Uh, They walk up to him, handcuff him. Uh, He again makes the statement, you got me twice. He demanded that Melvin Purvis tell him uh, who gave him up, who rolled over on him, and he died from his wounds later that day. However, because nothing can be easy, one of those FBI agents uh, goes against both of those accounts. FBI agent Winfred Hopton. Uh, uh, I don't think you'll meet a guy named Winfred nowadays, uh, but hey, you can bring it back. Anybody having a kid anytime soon? Uh, Winfred claims that uh, local boys, they weren't even there when Floyd was shot. Um, it was just the four FBI agents. Uh, he says that uh, that Floyd points this 1911 at the FBI agents, gets shot by two of them, and he's mortally wounded right then and there. He also gave an interview to Time Magazine because that was what you did. Um, and he's also uh, on record as saying that that Herman Hollis, the guy allegedly uh, pumping round after round uh, from his 45 Thompson submachine gun into babyface Nelson's, or excuse me, into pretty boy Floyd's body, uh, Herman wasn't even there. And, and in fact, Herman's official FBI uh, records state that he was nowhere near, or rather they, they don't show that he was on scene. I guess we'll word it like that. Um, and so who knows what actually went down with, uh, with pretty boy Floyd. Uh, the one thing that we can agree is that he was shot and killed. But again, you just don't know exactly how it went down. Uh, there were no body cameras back then. So leads you to kind of wonder exactly what happened. Um, again, as a, uh, as a cop and especially now as a detective, um, I, I have really learned the truth to the statement that there's, um, there's, his, well, we usually say there's his side, her side, and then what actually happened. But in this case, there's the FBI's side, the retired FBI's agent, FBI agent's side, the local cop side, and then there's what actually happened somewhere in and amongst all of that, uh, just because nothing can be clear. Now, Babyface Nelson. Uh, again, sort of found by accident. Uh, talk about that Spider-Man meme again. He's driving down the road uh, with uh, with a compatriot of his and his own wife in a stolen Ford V8. Again, remember that Ford V8's the fastest and most powerful car running on the road in the early 1930s. That is what everybody wants because it can outrun uh, anything in its path. Uh, nothing even holds up to it. Uh, two FBI agents... Um, uh, end up passing him and do one of those like, holy shit, that's our guy thing. Uh, these agents, uh, uh, Crowley and this Herman Hollis guy, uh, uh, the Thompson's machine gun guy, um, they proceed to make several U-turns as they're chasing each other's tails. And in a weird twist of events, babyface Nelson and his Ford V8 end up pursuing the FBI now, for those of you that aren't in law enforcement, usually it's the other way around. Uh, this may very well be one of the only documented times of a law enforcement agency being pursued by the person they are pursuing. 
they get into a rolling gunfight on Highway 12. Um, luckily for uh, Hollis and uh, and Crowley, one of their rounds punches through the radiator of this Ford V8 um, and ends up pretty well disabling that car. And so Babyface Nelson pulls the car into a park in Barrington, Illinois. And the Battle of Barrington, as it's called, begins shortly thereafter. Um, Hollis and uh, and Crowley end up overshooting um, and and passing by something like 100 yards. They pass this Ford V8, skid to a halt, get sideways, go bailing out of the car. And in this gun battle, uh, it's believed that uh, that Hollis and Crowley uh, are, are wounded uh, at this time. However, um, Babyface Nelson proceeds to take 45 round through the abdomen that ends up being a fatal round. Um, he's wounded. He's seen, uh, by one of 12 witnesses, he's seen exchanging guns with his, uh, his male partner that he was with. Uh, his wife was, was told to kind of stay down and stay in cover. Um, and then he sets out just kind of across no man's land firing on, uh, on the FBI. Um, uh, he ends up shooting, Herman Hollis in the head and, and killing him instantly. Um, it's believed that, uh, that one of the agents had a shotgun. Uh, I think it was Hollis. Um, Hollis had fired on Babyface Nelson with this shotgun. Nelson takes something like eight shotgun pellets to the legs, falls down. So when he gets back up, advances on Hollis, uh, who has the bad fortune of needing to transition from his shotgun to his sidearm. Um, and as he's in the middle of that transition, that's when he's ultimately killed by babyface Nelson. Um, Nelson also uh, uh, ends up mortally wounding uh, Samuel Crawley, although Crawley manages to live long enough to um, tell Melvin Purvis about what's happened, uh, and, and then he succumbs to his injuries. Um, babyface Nelson, no honor amongst thieves. Uh, he does die later that night um, uh, next to his wife, uh, I believe that was in November of 1934. Um, but his own wife wraps him in a blanket and dumps his dead body in an alleyway, which he's later found by a bystander who reports it to the police who tell the FBI, again, no honor amongst thieves. This guy's own wife just dumped into an alleyway. She ended up serving one year in prison for harboring a fugitive. Um, after the uh, the death uh, of the Dillinger gang, uh, old Melvin Purvis was even more popular than before. And if you know anything about J. Edgar Hoover, he was a little bit of a media whore himself. And allegedly, J. Edgar was pretty upset that little Mel was getting all this media attention and started to make life real difficult for him. And so in 1935, um, Melvin Purvis ceases his career. He resigns from the FBI and goes back to being a lawyer. Uh, in 1936, he writes a book called American Agent, which is now on my list of books that I need to read. Um, and uh, and he just sort of does his thing, practicing law and uh, living off some of his royalties uh, until World War II kicks off. And then as if he hasn't done enough uh, for his country, he decides to go and sign up. He ends up becoming an army officer, uh, army intelligence officer, and uh, uh, is tasked at the end of the war with gathering evidence uh, against the Nazi war criminals uh, for the Nuremberg trials. Um, he ends up retiring from the army as a, uh, as a colonel, uh, which should be Melvin Purvis entering his twilight years on a high note. 
However, seems to be a little bit of a fall from grace. And maybe that's not entirely fair. Um, February 20th, 1960, um, Melvin Purvis is killed. Single gunshot wound to the head. Uh, his death is ruled a suicide. The coroner's report does not speculate on his death. Um, and in fact, nowadays, um, based off the autopsies I've been to, coroners will tell you the sort of the mechanism of death, gunshot wound to the head, um, not so much the, the cause of death, suicide, homicide, things like that. Um, the interesting thing about his death is they'd found that he, he might have actually killed himself accidentally, attempting to extract a tracer round from a handgun given to him by his FBI colleagues when he resigned his post with the FBI. That handgun was owned by a guy named Gus Winkler. Now, Gus was a prohibitionary gangster, hung out with the Chicago outfit and some of the Italian uh, the Italian families. Uh, and uh, he was killed, this Gus guy was killed, after he was seen going into Melvin Purvis's office and allegedly rolling over on whomever within the outfit. Uh, he worked for Al Capone, if that gives you any idea. Um, however, Al Capone didn't order uh, uh, Gus Winkler's death. Um, and I don't want to paint Gus into this victim light. Gus was one of the shooters at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. Um, and, But in the angel on his shoulder, he took issue with the Kansas City Massacre and that's what he was going to talk to Melvin Purvis about was one of the guys involved in the Kansas City murder, uh, massacre, Vern Miller. Uh, but his boss, Frank Nitti, who's an old school Italian gangster, sees this. And of course, there is no other explanation for why Gus, a known mobster, is going to the FBI office. And uh, he orders Gus be killed. And ultimately, um, Gus ends up walking out of a building one day to the tune of several shotgun blasts uh, is killed and pretty well gunned down, uh, in October of, uh, of 1933, just kind of a tangled web. You've got this, this handgun owned by a former mobster who was gunned down after rolling over on a mobster to an FBI agent. And that FBI agent went and took down other gangsters and was ultimately killed by this gun. And it's all, it, it's very, I don't know. It, I guess that's just it. It is, it is a, a tangled web. And so it makes you wonder, though, was Melvin Purvis, was he this, this fallen angel, this poster boy of the FBI who could do no wrong and took down some of the most feared and infamous criminals in American history only to, what, kill himself? 26 years later in his living room or was it just shitty luck? Was he, was he just this, was he this, this kind of normal cop, this guy who, who has to exist between vice and virtue. Um, and his infamy, just like the people that he investigated and attempted to apprehend and, and who he went after and, ultimately killed his infamy and reputation far preceded him. Um, and maybe he just happened to fuck up that one time 
trying to extract a trace around from this 45 and went off and in his face and killed him. I'm not one for black magic. Maybe the fucking gun was haunted. I don't know. But it, uh, it does give you a lot to think about. Melvin Purvis's story is, is kind of a sad one. All things considered. Um, it's, it's one of those ones where you, you don't know if he's uh, really a good guy or not. You, you can't really tell. Um, you like to think he is. I mean, shit took down these bank robberies or these bank robbers, uh, allowed Americans to try and sleep at night. And then he went to war on behalf of America as an intelligence officer. And then he, uh, put Nazis in prison, uh, by all accounts. Hey, good job, man. Good work. Enjoy your retirement. But I, I, I don't know. Um, maybe there's a little bit more research that needs to be done on the man. I'm not too sure. But again, as we get further and further away from this 80 some odd years later, um, do we just let the stories tell themselves? Do we just let it be? And, and Hey, whatever tale is told, it is what it is. I don't know. I would, uh, I would encourage you all to, uh, look up little Mel and, uh, look into, uh, more of his exploits and, and maybe go find yourself that book, American agent and, uh, draw your own conclusions. I, I don't know. I, I like to think, I don't think that Melvin Purvis was this fallen angel. Um, I think that he was a, a good cop, uh, who was faced with an extraordinary set of circumstances. And then at the end of the day, just fucked up one time and had a really bad day, had, had some bad luck, uh, had a, uh, a gun that malfunctioned. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if he ignored one of the four firearm safety rules or, uh, obviously he had to that gun. You don't just point a fucking gun at your head, but at any rate, that's, I don't know. That's my take on it. I'm curious to know yours. Hit me up on Instagram. Let me know again if you like these uh, these short 30-minute episodes or so um, on these uh, little blips in history. Again, it's not an exhaustive history lesson. It certainly isn't isn't a you know a, a great deep dive into these people, but uh, enough to hopefully scratch the surface and maybe uh, pique your interest a little bit. So I appreciate you all listening. Again, uh, we have changed the name. I say we a lot. I used to work for a guy that when you'd say we, he'd go, who's we, a mouse? You got a mouse in your pocket? Anyways, um, I have changed the name of the podcast from Blue Line Millennial to The Modern Cop. Um, There is a reason for that. It's in a blog post on the website. Um, uh, Part of it comes down to, a I don't know, maybe a certain level of maturity um, that two years ago when I started this, it was Blue Line Millennial. You know, look at me. I'm a millennial and I'm a cop. Um, And, uh, I think I may have grown out of that a little bit. I don't know. I do appreciate you joining me on this ride. Um, uh, as, as we continue to, to work through these episodes, um, together, I say we, because it's you and me on this one, guys. Uh, if you've got any ideas on who you want to hear about history time, let me know. I've got a few ideas on there. Uh, Ralph Lamb and the Vegas mob is a pretty interesting story. I'm truly, I am fascinated by the history of Las Vegas. Um, I could probably talk to my wall, uh, which is basically what I'm looking at right now for the better part of an hour on uh, the history of Las Vegas and the crime syndicates that operated out there. So if you want to hear about that one, let me know if you got some other ideas. Uh, I've got the London Metropolitan Service. Um, uh, That will probably be a two-part episode because that is such an incredible uh, history spanning, um, I think, 150 years, if not more than that. 
Um, it actually does go further back than that, clear into the 1700s. But uh, again, that is another episode for another day. Let me know what you want to hear on the next episode of History Time. I appreciate you all listening. Stay safe, and I'll see you on the road. Thank you.